You know, Josh, you mentioned about the, uh, the elections yesterday and um, nothing like bringing politics and religion together in the same place, right? The two things we're not supposed to talk about because they're both potentially offensive and separates everybody, but yeah, well, whatever. Um, I will have to, I just have to have one thing to say about elections. I like the way we do it here so much better than in America. You know, it happens, what is, it's just a few weeks, you know, they call an election and you have the, in America, this goes on for two years before you finally get to the election. So we've been in this process forever and it feels like it will never end. And then you no sooner get through an election and then you start into the next cycle of them. So what is it, 60 days or something like that? You have 60 days to, to have the election once it's been called here or something like that? Oh, that we could do that in the States. But yeah, doesn't work quite that way. So anyway, we are still in Mark's gospel, the end of uh, chapter 11. So open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 11. Picking up the next section here, uh, beginning at verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. So when I walked in this morning, Goodrin said, are you going to sing this morning? And I actually, I said, I have no song. I have no song to start with. But should we sing? We should sing. We always have to sing a prayer, right? You know what? And there's no more important prayer anytime we open the Gospels than this. And that is, we want to see Jesus. Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that, isn't that why we open his word more than anything else? We want to see Jesus. So let's pray that prayer together. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch Him, and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord. And help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as we see Jesus, we will truly see ourselves for who we are and what we are. Show us Jesus and show us our proper response to him so that we may truly be children of your kingdom and bear the family likeness of our heavenly Father. Help us. Amen. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. Let me begin by reading the passage, 
And then I want to begin by just making a couple of, I think, really significant and important points of context as we, as we come into this section. So Mark 11, beginning at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As we come into this section of Mark, a couple points of context that I think are very important for us to understand and really significant to the, to the grasping of not only of this passage, but what follows. We realize, first of all, that as we come into the 11th chapter and from here on, time really slows down in this gospel. You see, up until this point in Mark's gospel, things happen very quickly. And we suddenly move from one scene to another scene, and, and Mark's gospel reads like a, a series of snapshots capturing these, these cameo scenes of, of Jesus' life and, and ministry. But these first 10 chapters of Mark, we have to realize, cover several years of Jesus' life. But all of a sudden, as we come here into the 11th chapter, things slow down considerably. And while these 10 chapters record three years of ministry and, and Jesus' life, these next six chapters will record the final week of his life. In fact, the, the, the same is true with, with all the gospel writers. John is the most pronounced of all of these writers as we look at this, at this fact, in fact, fully half of John's gospel, 10 chapters of the 21, focus on the final week of Jesus' life. And in fact, chapters 13 through 19 in John's gospel take place in that final evening of Jesus' life. Time really slows down, and, and we, we, we walk with Jesus from the upper room to the garden and most of that takes place in that walk as he is talking with his disciples. So here, time slows down. 
And we see these, these final days of Jesus' life in, in much greater detail than we see the, the rest of Jesus' life. And the, the point is obvious that this final week of Jesus' life is, is loaded with meaning and, and significance that the gospel writers want us to, to take a look at and to, to really pause and, and to take in. These are Jesus' last days, and so many of the themes of his life and his ministry now come together and are, are focused on at this time. The second point of context that I think is very significant here is to see how this passage we're looking at today begins a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's a, a series of disputations as they, they really are standing opposed to one another. We see here in, in, in these verses that we just read, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. We see the same thing, look in, in chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Look, look at chapter 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, and this begins another conversation. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and, and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that, he answered them as well, and, and so on, so forth. We, we have all of these conversations that are going on between Jesus and the, and the religious leaders as they are opposing him, and they're, they're trying to trap him or, or capture him in, in some kind of a way. And alongside these, these disputations, Jesus has some very, very pointed words to these religious leaders as well. He, chapter 12, verse 1, he speaks in a parable. And it's a parable about these religious leaders and, and how they, they have gone wayward. We'll look at that uh, next week. But notice their response to him. They are offended, verse 12. They are offended and they, they, they are seeking to arrest him. And then Jesus has this final word in chapter 12, verse 38. He says, beware of the scribes, and so on. And so he has these, these words of warning. And we'll look at each of these in coming weeks. And and so in this section, Mark sets up yet another transition in his, in his gospel. Each of these encounters would, would establish a theme that Mark has been building throughout his, his gospel. As the Son of God, Jesus has ultimate authority over all things, even over the religious leaders and the religious system of the day. Jesus' authority does not come from man. His authority comes from God. Let's see how this passage unfolds and how he, 
he builds that theme, and it, it continues to build as we move along through the gospel. Look at verse 27 again. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Note a couple of phrases here that ought to take our our thoughts right back to earlier verses, namely verses 15 through 19. In fact, we note the similarity in wording of these, these two passages what we just saw there in verse 27, but look back at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Jesus came again to Jerusalem, and he is walking in the temple the same as he did previously in this, in this other passage. And that word of context is so important because of what follows. Because we see in this week in Jesus' life, we find him again and again in the courts of the temple. He is teaching and he is is disputing with the religious leaders here in the temple. He is mixing with the crowds as they are preparing for Passover. He, all through this week we will see Jesus here in this place. It is a busy place. It is, it is the hub of life of, of the people. It is the hub of their religious life, and really it is the, it's the hub of their identity. It sits at the, the center of Jerusalem, not only physically at the, at the top of the hill, but in the center of the the life and the heart of the people. And this is where Jesus is throughout this week. So all this week, we see Jesus moving back and forth from Bethany, where he is likely staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we see that earlier in the chapter where he is, verse 12, he is in Bethany and he goes and he goes into Jerusalem, and then they come into Jerusalem, and then they go back to Bethany, and then they come back into Jerusalem. We see that in in chapter 11, and so this seems to be Jesus' pattern throughout the week. And so here he comes into the temple, this, this prominent place that is the heart of the life of these people. And this was in nearly every way, the center of life for the Jews. And so when Jesus turns over the tables and he drives out the merchants here in, in verse 15, it is, it is no small scene. It, it is a powerful act, which no doubt some took as, as shocking kind of behavior. It was, it was unthinkable. It was a statement that would get the attention of the elders just as it was meant to do. And so here Jesus returns to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, 
where the masses of people are passing through from one side of the temple to the other. And Stuart gave an excellent description of that in a previous message as he, as he was describing that scene. It was really a, a very picturesque way of describing that, the way you did that, Stuart. It was so good. And so as Jesus is walking through the temple, verse 28... The scribes and the elders approach him with a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Obviously, the these things, that's such an important phrase here. These things are the events that we have just looked at. Within their question, though, lies a much deeper issue. And it really gets to the very heart of the gospel message. You see, behind their question, we we see something much, much deeper and much more insidious going on here. Here are men who had set themselves up as Jesus' judge they would, as best they could, attempt to exercise their authority over Jesus. Who gave you this authority? But do you hear behind their question is a much deeper statement, not a question, but a much deeper statement, and that is, we didn't give you this authority, therefore you don't have this authority. Because we're the only ones who can give this kind of authority around here. It's not a question, it's an accusation. We didn't give you this authority, so who did? They were, after all, the religious leaders of the temple, and then they, in the eyes of themselves and the people, were the ultimate religious authorities of their day. And their question is not an invitation to a conversation. It is an attempt to trap him. Who does Jesus think he is? Who does he answer to? And ultimately, this little conversation, this little tete-a-tete, who is going to submit to whom? That's what's behind here. Who has the greater authority here? But don't you realize, too, that really their question is really a deflection of the real issue that they refused to deal with? How often, if we don't like the message, we will do everything we can to discredit the messenger. It's a great way of avoiding the real questions that Jesus is asking, isn't it? If I don't like the question or, or the command, all I have to do is discredit the one who is asking the question or giving the command. I always find it's an interesting study to consider the real question beneath 
the question or the real statement behind the statement. I suppose it's, it comes from years of working with people and, and teaching and how often somebody will ask a question. Well, rather than ask, answering the question, oftentimes my next question is, I'm curious why you ask that. What's behind that? Why is that so concerning to you? Because oftentimes there is something else deeper behind the question than the question itself. And I think that's exactly where the Pharisees, the the scribes, the, the elders are going here. There's something much deeper, and they want to discredit the one who asks the questions and makes the statements. I remember when I was a kid, or even as a young adult, my oldest brother would sometimes reprimand me or set me straight about something that I had said. Or he would have an instruction for me. He would tell me to do something. And being the youngest of three I have two older brothers. I, I didn't like being told what to do. I hated being told what to do. I figured the youngest person in the house, everybody tells me what to do, right? Two older brothers, mom, dad. Sometimes it felt like my dog told me what to do. Feed me, take me out, take me for a walk. Everybody telling me something to do. But I have realized in my adult life that my oldest brother is actually pretty smart. Took me a long time to admit that. And he has good ideas. But that didn't matter to me as a young kid. And so if he told me to do something or to stop doing something, I would simply look at him and say, who do you think you are? You are not the boss of me. You see, it had nothing to do with the request. In fact, it may have been a very good suggestion, but what was really at the heart of the issue was the fact that I was not going to do anything that my brother told me to do. If I could in any way remove the idea that he has any authority over me, then I can completely disregard the command. You see, this really is at the heart of their question. If Jesus does have authority over us, then we are obligated to do something about it. We cannot simply ignore him. Recognizing Jesus' identity, recognizing Jesus' authority forces us to make a decision about him. We simply cannot sit in a neutral place. And so once again, Jesus goes directly to the heart, the heart of these people. He goes to the heart of man in his question back to them. You see, answering a question with another question was a common rabbinic custom. This was a very common form of debate at this particular time. It's not unusual at all. We see it back in chapter 10, 
verses 2 and 3. We see the same type of thing. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered, what did Moses command you? It's a very common form of debate. You ask a question, I ask a question in return. And I've often thought, wouldn't it be an interesting conversation where you just have question, 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 question. Does anybody ever answer the questions? Well, their questions go back and forth, and that's oftentimes how it goes. It's a frequent device in these these kinds of debates, but why this question about John the Baptist? Isn't that an interesting place to go? See, the message behind this question is so important because it gets to the heart of the issue. John's message and Jesus' message as well is a message of repentance. Look back at the very first chapter of Mark. Go clear back to the beginning, Mark chapter 1. And we begin to see what John's message was. Why was this such a problem? Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, John's message called the people to see themselves as completely undone before God, to recognize as they as they open their eyes and see Jesus, they would truly see themselves as they really were. They could really see in them that we are people in need of forgiveness. We are people who need to repent. But the leaders saw this only as an intellectual trap and Jesus no doubt asked his question and had a much deeper, deeper sense behind it. You see, both John and Jesus stand in common opposition to those people who will disregard the will of God. His response to their question exposes these people as religious pretenders who are completely destitute of any kind of divine spiritual life. He is offering them yet again an opportunity, an invitation to turn away from their old phony forms of religiosity and and embrace a completely new way of life, a, a way of life in the kingdom. But you see, that entrance into the kingdom could only come through repentance, through acknowledging that we are sinners who need a Savior. It meant releasing their their sense of pride, their their sense of control, their sense of power over, over the people. It really, it meant freedom from a dead system that they were absolutely enslaved to. It looks, like a, it looks like a dispute, but really inside of this is always an invitation to see yourself, to see God, to, to come into the kingdom as his people. 
You see, once again, Jesus, as always, goes to the very heart of the matter. They would ask him where his authority came from, but, but his question goes back to them and it exposes where their real authority came from. Look at verse 32. They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. Why would they be so afraid of the people? Why do they care about public opinion? Because that was not only the source of their authority, but that was the full extent of their power. If the crowds turned against them, they lose everything. They would lose their credibility, their position. They would lose their power. I would say they would lose their control over the people. And that was the thing that mattered to them more than anything. It was, a, it was really a matter of power. And I suppose what really, what is truly frightening in their response is that their desire to keep their position and their power exposes their real heart toward God. They care more about people's opinions than they do about God's opinion. It is a dangerous place, brothers, brothers and sisters, when we lose our awe of God. And we care more about what people think than about what God thinks. Remember, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who do you fear more? Do you fear the opinions of people? Do you live more for, for, for the, the, the affection and, and winning the approval of people? Or, or do you really have a fear of God? Do you, do you submit yourself to the authority of God ultimately? Or do we, like the, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, live only to fulfill our own agenda or the agenda of other people? Or do I fear God and God alone? God, help us if we ever get to the place where the opinions of people matter more than the opinion of God. That is a dangerous place to live when we care more about our personal agendas and getting our own way than we do about submitting to God's authority in humility and repentance. It is always a dangerous place 
when our motive to serve as leaders in God's church is anything other than our love for him. Remember Jesus' questions to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. I'm going to make a bold statement, which I rarely do. We have an AGM next Sunday. And there's a booklet back there with leaders, potential leaders in this church. We ought to prayerfully consider this. Is this the one motive anyone would ever want to serve in this church? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. That is the only answer to the question. You see, at the heart of this brief story is the exposing of man's will, is standing opposed to the authority of God. I am the master of my own fate, I am the captain of my own life, and you can't break me. It is the will of man that refuses to submit to the invitation of Jesus. It is the proud and bratty kid in me that says, you are not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. But I hope we can also see within Jesus' words, there is an invitation here. Just as there is an invitation in John the Baptist's words, repent, come into the kingdom. It wasn't a trap. But they made it a trap for themselves because they wanted to trap Jesus, but he won't be trapped by any person. He simply puts the question out. It is another opportunity for them to realize and to confess their own blindness and to, to ask him for sight. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. But the fact that they keep questioning Jesus, keep trying to discredit him, keep silencing him, keep attempting to do derail him in some way, you know, there's something in there that would indicate to me that they are to some degree convicted by his message. Because if they weren't convicted, they wouldn't keep coming back at him. But rather than acting on the conviction, they choose to silence the messenger. It's a question of authority. Who will be the sole authority, the ultimate authority in my life? Me? The authority that I get from other people? Or will I submit to the authority of Jesus? You can't have it both ways. It picks up steam from here. 
This is the beginning of it. Each message gets stronger until finally Jesus says, watch out for these kinds of leaders. They don't care about God's authority. What about us? Will we submit to the authority of Jesus? Or do we insist on being the sole authority of our own lives? Let's take some time for reflection. I'm going to ask you to just sit quietly in the in that place in your own heart. And ask this question of Jesus. Let him guide you. Who really is the authority in my life? Is it really you? Are you Lord? Or do I simply say that? What is competing for that? And what part of my life am I unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus? Jesus, do I really love you? Is my motive to serve really a motive of love and sacrifice? Do I love your church? Father, I pray that you would help us to truly see ourselves honestly, clearly, in the light of these words. To what extent are we like those leaders who want to excuse away or explain away or in some way quiet this convicting message. Help us, Father, to admit 
those places where we really need to submit to your authority, where we need to repent, to bring ourselves fully, completely before you. Help us to take up that invitation to walk with you and live with you as the sole authority of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name.